Right, hello everyone, welcome back. Happy to see you. This is the first podcast of the new year, uh, which is very exciting. I, have t- I took a little break over Christmas, uh, but I am here today with a very exciting guest who, if I'm remembering correctly, Sarah, uh, I think Solomonic Pentacles just reached number one on Amazon. Uh, or I believe it came thing. out today officially. It started shipping. Gotcha. Okay. Yes. Okay. So I'm with um, Sarah Mastros, uh, who is, or you may know her from the Orphic Hymns Grimoire, or the, or the new translations of the Orphic Hymns Grimoire, uh, and more recently, the Pentacles of Solomon the King. Um, so, Sarah, it's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Brilliant. Okay, so let's. I, I, I want to talk about a couple of things uh, today, especially. Um, but I think one of the ones that I'm most interested in, sort of, to kick it off and start with, is uh, there have been a lot of discussions coming up recently, especially in sort of the online occult sphere, especially on Facebook. I've seen uh, about mm-hmm. differences of cosmologies and, and differences of, of worldviews and things, and how the worldview sort of impacts magical practice uh, and lots of different things around hermeneutics and translation and how we can translate some worldviews over. Um, so I guess to, to really kick this off, I want to get into it right away. Uh, what sort of is your current cosmology when it comes to your practice? What sort of systems are you using, essentially? I feel like that's a really complicated question. And between you and me, I'd honestly be a little suspect of anyone who had a simple answer to that mm-hmm. question. Absolutely. Um, I mean, so I'm going to try and keep this short, sure. but I apologize in advance. This is going to be a long answer. So I think like when I talk about my cosmology, I feel like I have sort of have to tell like an origin story. Mm-hmm. You know what well, I mean? Well, about sort of, like, where my cosmology started and how it's grown and expanded over time. So I grew up in what I would generally call an interfaceless household, right? My mom's family is Greek, but the best. my mother's family is Jewish, Ashkenaz Jewish, um, in fact, helped found the reform movement in the United States. So we're pretty solidly in camp reform. Um, but my family wasn't really religious at all, right? Like we went to synagogue not even like once a year. I mean, like for my cousins, like weddings and bar mitzvahs and funerals. Right, the, the, the fun, the right. fun stuff, <laughs> the family stuff, right? Um, but you know, a thing about Judaism is that it's primarily a practice in the home, and we definitely like had Passover Seder, and like I definitely grew up knowing I was Jewish, right? But I will say that for me, my relationship to Judaism, my family's relationship to Judaism, is definitely one that is about, like, it is an ancestor practice in its right. core. You know what I mean? That like what it means to be Jewish is about like the people that we belong to. Mm. And like, and the other key component of being Jewish for me as a kid was being not Christian while growing up in Bible country. Right. So my dad's family is Greek, but honestly, like, I mean, they went to church a little when he was a kid, but like his family is not religious. Right. And my dad was a pretty, my father was a militant atheist when I was young, maybe like, softening into an agnostic as like we both grew up you know what i mean like my parents are pretty young but I was, yeah um, sure. kids, right and but i grew up deep in bible country so i grew up in Lancaster county pennsylvania amish country right but i didn't which is a weird place to grow up religiously right it's got this very strong anabaptist christian right so anabaptist means 
that they believe instead of baptizing infants against their will, right? They won't baptize somebody until they're grown up and can like actively seek baptism. So right. that means adult, adult baptism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people, even I think of it a lot like Judaism, right? So I think of Amish people as like ultra Orthodox and a Baptist. Yeah, and I can, there's Mennonites who are like modern Orthodox. Mm-hmm. So like I think people don't understand there's a lot of Anab at least where I grew up, there's a lot of Anabaptist Christians who are just like fully in the modern world. That's just their religion. And you know, if you don't have a conversation about religion with them, they're really indistinguishable from most other kinds of Christians, except they're right. pretty hard on the pacifism, I will say, in terms of like day to day life is maybe from an outsider perspective, what sets Anabaptists apart mm-hmm. from other kinds of Christians. Right. So I grew up deep in Christianity, but sort of in the period I was growing up, right? So in the late seventies through like the eighties, a lot of like hard evangelical right. Christians were moving in, right? So that's the religious background I grew up against, but that wasn't my family. Another way to say that is I grew up knowing that basically everyone I encountered who wasn't my immediate family thought I was going to hell. Like just because of who I was. Right, like so, having come up in that framework, and for me, like, like magic and witchcraft were always things I was drawn to. So I can't tell you like when I became a witch, but I can talk about like I was about I was about eleven when I discovered other people were also witches. Right, Right? it was kind of a thing. I mean, was there any was there any kind of you know I guess what we would call today sort of folk traditions or anything in because I know certain Amish communities do have things like powwow or anything. Yeah, like that. absolutely, right. And so I and and where I grew up, like we learned some of that in school, right? So like right. I learned to make hex signs in elementary. School, yeah, which I thought was awesome. Mm. Like oh, but the evangelical kids, the people who weren't from around here—that is to say, like their parents were not born in Lancaster; they had recently moved in. Mm. Some of them weren't allowed to do like the hex sign lesson because it was they were like their parents thought it was witchcraft. So some of those kids would get pulled out of school every once in a while, <laughs> and that made that made learning like I would not have characterized hex signs as witchcraft. Yeah, but like the Christians being opposed to them made it much cooler. Right, like, oh, it could have incentivized you. Like, okay, well, I actually want to learn like, this. Thing. I thought because because the way we learned it, it was just like a folk practice, and who wants to learn folk practices when they're twelve? But when we were learning folk practices that the Christian kids weren't allowed to learn because they were of the devil, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was real. But I mean, apparently, these people think I did it because it's real, so yeah. I'm going to try it. You know, and turns out when you try it, it just works, right? And so, and I grew up, you know, in beautiful countryside, and among the people, like, like I didn't grow up Amish, right? I grew up in the suburbs in, like, relatively normal American white lower middle class like working class suffered you know what i mean but even there was still remember what i said about people who aren't from around here Mm. i grew up in a place which like most of the united states this is very much not true although my impression it is perhaps much more true say in england like i grew up in a place where people still had a very deep and solid connection to the west there was Mm. like a love for this land where we live and that it was different than other places, and that it was alive with divinity, right? And I feel so that that's a big part of my so all of these things kind of play into my cognition, 
Right. Right. Like the idea of like, like I'm Jewish and I have a deep connection to Judaism. I'm Greek and I have a deep connection to Greekness as a cultural identity. Right. But not really to the Greek Orthodox Church at all. Yeah. Although, I mean, I say not at all, but just like synagogue, we went there for the other families. Right. You, you, like, you have experience of it. Yeah. Christening. I mean, my cousin is an Orthodox priest. Like the Orthodox mm. priest where I grew up, the priest now is my cousin. Right. Greek cousin. I don't know. I think he's like my second cousin twice for me. When you're Greek, everybody you're related Everyone's to. Your cousin. Everyone's Everyone's cousin. Everyone's cousin. Everyone's cousin. Everyone's cousin. Everyone's cousin. Right. And then so as I got older, and then I think the next really important like aspect of my cosmology is that, you know, I trained my graduate training is in theoretical mathematics. Oh, wow. Right. And that forms a really important part of my cosmology, not so much in the like ontological parts, like not so much when I'm talking about like what things exist in the world, but in the epistemic. I'm sorry, I'm getting, I'm using a lot of technical philosophy words. But I feel like maybe people listening don't. So ontology is about like what kinds of things exist in the world, right? The, the study of being. Do angels yeah. exist? Like, do ghosts exist? Those are ontological questions, right? But then we also have this epistemic, like how do we come to know? Like how, how do we form an understanding of the world based on experience and faith and all these other things, right? And so like because I came up in math and particularly in mathematics and philosophy, as perhaps you can hear. Right. right I have Aristotle teaches us, right, that there are three ways to come to know, right? Which in Greek are pistis, gnosis, and dianosis. Pistis mm -hmm. is usually translated as faith, but I think that word has like so much baggage on it in English. It's just like, how do I know that Paris is the capital of France? Well, like, I have no direct experience of that. I've never been in France. I don't know. People that I trust coldly and I just believe them. Right? Book, book learning, right? Mm -hmm. But also religious faith. But mostly it's like book learning. Somebody told you that it was true and you just believe them. Right? Pistis. Gnosis, which is a word that, like, gets thrown around in the magic it's community. It's very popular, like, yeah. Like, maybe they don't know what that word means. Yep. Gnosis is knowledge that you have through like direct experience. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you know that my veil is yellow? You are having like a direct sensory experience of its yellowness. Right. Asterisk, I mean, it's actually mediated. Not at all a direct experience. There's like a lot of technological things. There's, there's the zoom, you know, semantics and stuff. Where but, like yeah. even video evidence is not even remotely reliable anymore. Yeah. So it's actually like, like a really complicated. Edit this to make you have a blue hat, you know, we don't know. Right. But. But my experience of its yellowness mm -hmm. is really a direct Gnostic sensory experience, right? right? But technologically, it's mediated through all these levels of trust between, right? And then we have this last one, dianosis, which is just the same as the English word diagnosis. And it's like knowledge you come to through reason. So, right. like, for me, cosmologically, I would say, like, even though this isn't really a cosmological belief, like a belief about what things exist, like, the ways I form my cosmology are really rooted in that sort of mathematical training where I believe that if any of those three roads knowledge are in conflict with each other, you're mm. probably wrong about all of them. Right? And like, yep. I will not rest until I have settled that question. Mm -hmm. Except that, you know, my favorite thing about math was that you get to prove things. You get to be right. Like just 100% unquestionably right. But you know, as you move into like much more sophisticated mathematics, 
you start to understand that like among the most important mathematical teachings of the 20th century was that like as soon as you have a language with any kind of expressive power, right? So in math terms, you'd say basically, as soon as you have a first order predicate logic, as soon as you have enough math to do like elementary school arithmetic, hmm. it's definitely, it can't be consistent and complete. Like you're always going to be able to make up things that are neither true nor false, mm-hmm. which is like a very mind blowing experience. Like it's I don't want to, I mean, to clarify, I am saying that sentence I just said radically altered the face of mathematics and was among the most important like human discoveries of the 20th century. I know it doesn't seem that way, but like yeah, to, to us because it's, it's really we can't take thing it for that granted, really informs sure. not just science but like the way like girling completeness is what I'm talking about. Like really informs the way that late 20th century people in the West, like all of us listening to this post, almost right. Like, just understand the world. Like, it filters down into our cosmology, right? That kind of, like, honestly, like, divine wonder is at mm. the core of everything. And that's, like, that's a really important piece of my cosmology, right? Yeah. Now, I know that's not actually the answer you wanted about cosmology. So I will also say that, like, I broadly, I work in what I would think of as, like, a sort of uh, kind of syncretic late antiquity kind of cosmology, right? That's bringing in a lot of Jewish elements and a lot of Greek elements, mm. right? And sort of mixing them together with some Egyptian stuff, maybe like a little bit of Christian stuff right around the edges, you know? Um, and so like similar to sort of the people who are writing the PGM, I guess is what I would say, mm. except that I live in the 21st century in Pittsburgh and I do not live in Alexandria in the third century. And that makes my cosmology very, very different from those people. I will say at the very, the last phases of editing Orphic Hymns mm. overlap with the first phases of writing the Sorcery of Solomon, right? And I don't generally like, I would not usually use the word chaos magician to describe myself, right? But there is certainly a sense in which like, depending what kind of magic I'm working, like I'm really leaning much harder into like one corner of a cosmology than the other, right? So when I'm writing Orphic hymns, I'm really leaning into that ancient Greek corner, right? Right. And when I'm writing like Sorcery of Solomon, I'm really writing, leaning into like 12th century Judaism, you know? And it was interesting doing both of those at the same time. Like I was sort of alternating day by day, sometimes like hour by hour. Like I do a little mm. bit of one and a little bit of the other. And that was a really interesting, like, practice just a whole experience it's interesting because you know those two cosmologies like are very deeply interwoven you know Mm. what i mean like orphism in many ways is to grossly oversimplify like there are many ways in which orphism is like greek mythology plus Mm. like a quite jewish sort of near eastern quasi-monotheistic Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, and even then, when yeah, if, if we're talking about like 12th century Kabbalah and stuff as well, like there is a strong right. sort of Platonic influence on it, and then things running through it as right. well. And that's what I'm saying, right? So, like Orphism on the one end, but then the other, like, like Kabbalah definitely has like a huge, I would say, really Pythagorean influence, hmm. right? But yeah. but Greek uh, philosophy more broadly, but the Pentacles in particular really have this very strong like grecophone influence from like yeah 
you know, like, um, like hydromon, like goetic. Yeah, well, they, 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 they do strike me as very similar. Like, yeah, right. And like, if you, then if you take that Greek and then like mix it back into Judaism, you end up with these pentacles. And like, so that's actually it turns out kind of where my sweet spot is. Mm. Is like it's, it's in the middle there. I, I suppose yeah. in that way, like like to, like just to, to really quickly, like to what extent? I guess in that sense, do you think it's it's like I guess as a as a practice, even for people to adopt in the if they're working within a particular cosmology and they find you know maybe there are gaps in their understanding or their experience that they can look to similar cosmologies to find sort of parallels and then sort of reverse engineer and work it backwards to kind of influence their understanding of, of what or to what extent can we use cosmologies to kind of influence our understanding of other cosmologies that we're working with i guess in the way you're talking about oh yeah so i think a lot but i do think it's important to like distinguish between like cosmological factors mm. where say judaism and like ancient greek particularly orthic religion are really completely incompatible mm. right and like cultural ways in which they are deeply deeply compatible and have been compatible like have been collaborating the entire, I mean, collaborating and also sometimes murdering each other, but they're like in, not just in context, but really deeply interwoven with each other, the whole history, right? Like there is no, there is no Jewish history that predates a Greek influence. And there is no Greek history that predates a Jewish. Like we don't, those don't, like we don't have access to that history, right? I mean, Jewish writ large, right? Like through, Mm -hmm. right, history. So, like, cosmologically, they don't fit together at all. I mean, they're not that, right? Like, in many ways, those cosmologies are defined in, like, Judaism in particular, right? A lot of the way its cosmology is defined is in opposition to, not like, Hollywood probably, but like, century BC Greek like in particular right mm-hmm. and similarly the other way right like that is also happening the other direction that those two cosmologies are defining themselves in opposition to each other mm-hmm. right I just don't find that problematic okay. yeah <laughs> because culturally they're quite compatible yeah right and like I guess what I'm saying is like I'm not a cosmological purist yeah. And I think cosmological puritanism is incompatible with it. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I would agree. I, like, what I'm saying is not only do I think that, but like Jewish magicians through the entire history of Jewish magic are like, yeah, fuck. There, there's an invocation of Helios in the first chapter of Sephiroth. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, and similarly, with TGM, it's Oh, it's magic. yeah it's, like, it's full even of, of, of jesus and of the patriarchs of yahweh yeah right and that's just like not a problem mm. so i guess like at the at the root of it my cosmology is that i believe invisible nature is best understood by close observation of visible nature mm. you yeah. know okay and therefore i believe that like questions like how many gods are there is like a ridiculous childlike question about a complex fractionally dimensional geometry 
that is yeah. the only reasonable answer to that question. Mm. Yeah. I've heard sort of similar, um, I've, I've heard similar arguments with people before. Uh, it doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, well, there was one thing I said uh, earlier that I thought was really interesting about how you were sort of looking at when you were, when you were working with the pentacles of Solomon, especially, and you were sort of using some Orphic stuff and, and Greek stuff to supplement kind of the, the praxis element or the practical element of it. Um, oh, I don't know that I would say that. No. No. Okay. I mean, I'm think- saying like, well, I mean, because I don't, almost the other way, actually. Okay. I would say that, like, because here's the thing. The Hebrew amulet tradition, it's not broken. Like, there's not parts missing. I don't I don't have to plug in the gaps about how to use a Hebrew amulet. There's, like, mm. a very well, it's very well established, established yeah. living tradition of how Hebrew amulets work, right? Mm. As opposed to Orphism, which is, like, a dead tradition. I, I mean, the spirit of Orpheus lives, but I'm saying, like, there's not an Orphic church down the street. Right. It's not active. active you know I mean? So like right how those practice and, and like even most of the written sources we have on Orphism are not written by Orphic initiates, right? Like that's mm. not, I mean, I don't mean like primary text, but I mean, most of what we know about like how their actual ritual work, like most of that is actually political polemics against Orphic. Right. right. So that's where you have to like start to plug in the gap. Right. And yeah. And I mean, like, can we, you know, I, you can plug them in with a lot of different things. Hmm. Yeah. Right. But I don't know necessarily. I mean, I'm not saying like you couldn't or there would be something wrong, right, hmm. with trying to like develop an orphic tentacle practice. But I don't think that like, the pentacles aren't lost in the same way it works. Right. Because, yeah. So it's really to have so like reconstruct. It's a little more lost to some people because when a lot of people talk about pentacles, they're really thinking exclusively of like a very late, very Christian kind of corner of Solomonic practice. But hmm. that's like the sort of Renaissance Christian Solomonic grimoires. Like that's not the whole of the Solomonic tradition. There's like a whole gigantic Jewish stuff, yeah. an enormous Muslim Solomonic tradition. And those traditions, particularly the Jewish ones, like this magic's not like illegal in Judaism. Like many rabbis will write amulets for you. So like the the texts aren't lost. Like nobody's getting burned for doing this magic. Maybe like a magician is weird. And maybe you like don't want your daughter to marry a magician because he's a weirdo. Mm. But like it's not it's not like an inquisition, like it's not you're still like a perfectly legitimate member of the community. And so like the Hebrew amulet tradition is well preserved. Mm. Like historically, but also like just it's a living tradition, like there's no way you do it. Right. And so when you fit like Solomon and Pentacles into that Hebrew amulet tradition, right, like they the filling in the gap part, like that fills in most of the gap. Right. Okay. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. No. Um, so, I mean, so in, in terms of, of of when you when you're constructing, because like like you said, they're like when most people think of of amulets or even or even the pentacles, they usually default to you know the book of pentacles at the end of a of a Goetia or a Kia Solomon text, which is usually a quite a late stage 
Christianized mm-hmm. sort of Renaissance thing. Um, so can we talk I a little? Like, I mean, I don't know that I would call them Christianized. I think, like, with the exception of the Pentacles, mm. right? I think the Key of Solomon is written by Christians. Yeah. Like, I don't think it's a Christianized text. I think it's a Christian, a text Christian in art. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, but then, I'm so, so pedantic about it. <laughs> no, it's good. Um, no, so like, so in, in that sense, then, since most people will be familiar with sort of those variants of the Pentacles, uh, can we talk a little bit about, or just open up a little bit about some of the other uh, forms of Pentacles, some of the other sort of traditions that have come into it, and what that looks like? Is, is it a similar kind of practice and similar kind of, you know, like whether it's astrological considerations that we find in in the like the Kia Solomon stuff, or is it a different system? Yeah. So the pentacles that we think of as going with the key of Solomon, right? Like most people are thinking about the Mathers pentacles, which is what yep. my book is about, to be clear, mm. right? Which are relatively late and they're not, they're quite not, they're not present at all in some texts of the key of Solomon. And there's like a lot of good reasons to suppose they were not originally the same text, including that like almost, okay, look, I'm not a specialist in like the textual history. So, like, it's possible I'm going to say something slightly wrong about these manuscripts. I am eager to be corrected if somebody in the audience knows that. Someone, someone in the comments the can part, like, do something. Yeah. The, the book, of, the Key of Solomon has two parts, like a book one and a part two, yeah. a book two. And the pentacles actually aren't in either book, usually. They're, like, in between. And so there's mm-hmm. one piece of evidence that they're, like, like a late, they're a separate thing added in to mm-hmm. some manuscripts separately, right? And that's what I think. I do believe that like most of the key of Solomon is Christian in origin, rising out of the Greek tradition. I mean, rising out of a Greek tradition to the extent that we talk about the key of Solomon as if it's a single book, but it's mm. really like a family of related books. It's a books. family of manuscripts and, and traditions. Yeah, yeah. like depending how loose you want to get with where the boundaries of that are, like the earliest keys of Solomon are also like the latest hydromancia, right? Yeah. They're a clearly Greek. You know what I mean? Like there's a, but the pentacles I do think are Jewish in origin. Hmm. I mean, I have reasons for thinking that, but my primary reason is like they are clearly in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Like, but also they're like they're very much like other Hebrew amulet traditions. Like, hmm. like they're just structurally, they're just very, very similar. Like, in terms so of in terms are, of the ritual, or in terms of the look, or, or what? Well, in terms of the look, if you actually examine the Key of Solomon, it, it barely provides any ritual instructions for the pentacles. Mm. Like, it really doesn't say much about them at all. Like, yeah. it just presents some pentacles, and there's, like, two paragraphs. Yeah. Or it, 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 it would tell you, like, what well, each one's for. It'd be like, yeah, this is a second yeah. pentacle in Mars. But I mean, in terms of, like, how, what you're supposed to do with them, like, it doesn't, there's, like, some, basically, it says, like, you should make these in the normal map. Hmm. Right, and so I kind of, kind of the PGM do the usual Yeah, and so it's like, it's not exactly clear, right? I know today everybody thinks like, oh, you have to make them in the planetarily appropriate metal. I mean, not only do I not think that, I mean, most of the manuscripts don't think that either. Yeah, well, that's not even a thing in, in astrological magic anymore. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the metals. And similarly, astrological timing. So even though we talk about them as planetary pentacles, I would say that the pentacles are not primarily astrological in nature. That is mm. to say, their power is not really coming from the planet. So Agrippa, somewhere, I don't know. I don't know where. Agrippa basically lays out these three categories of men. And I'm not like dogmatic about it. 
but for this particular conversation, I think it's helpful to distinguish, right? Yeah, sure. Um, that he has like natural magic, which is like rocks and plants and like it's what we now might Yeah, like sympathetic magic, but particularly magic that's real quite materia heavy. And magic where the the power of the magic is really understood to come partly from the magician and partly from the material. Natural mm-hmm. magic, right? Mm-hmm. And then he has like astrological magic where the like root of the power is coming from this celestial body, right? Planet and stars. And then he has celestial or divine magic, um, which is where the power is coming from like God and angels and stuff. Yeah. Right? Well, the pentacles are very clearly in that third path. Like the essential power of the pentacles comes from the holy names that are on them. Right? Like it is a word magic and those words are understood to be divine. Right? And so, like the astrological does not actually, very few of the pentacles in most manuscripts call for specific astrological timing and which pentacle is assigned to which planet is not always consistent between them. Right. So it changes. So like more evidence that they're not that planetary. Right. Right? They're definitely like word magic. Right? Mm. Name magic. And because all of the magic names on them are Jewish, that is my position as to like, why I would Jewish. expect them. To. So I've been working recently on a Hebrew. So we do have a Hebrew manuscript of right? Hmm. Called Sefer HaOtot. Looks like that. Uh, you probably can. Let me find one of my pictures. Sorry. All I have in this book that I am showing you right now are like pretty bad photocopies of a I mean they, they still look good on here I mean, I mean the, the people on uh, on uh, Spotify who are listening and they won't be able to see it but uh, like, I'll show you some links and we can yeah, we can, yeah we can send links I'll post stuff in the comments and we'll Ha-O-Tot, you will find it yeah. like it's in the National Library of Israel to the best of my knowledge there is not an English translation available but there will be in about a year because I'm writing yeah because you're doing it yeah right? and so when I went into this project like, you know, I hadn't, I'd only seen, like, photos of magic, which, mm. like, even if I, I am not 100% fluent in Hebrew. Like, my Hebrew is, you know, okay, but not, like, a native speaker, yeah, sure. right? Um, but also, this manuscript, like, the manuscripty element of it leaves mm-hmm. something to be desired. Like, yeah. this dude's handwriting, his, like, good scribal handwriting on the pentacles, very good. His like handwriting where he's like mm, not so good. The manuscript's not in that condition. It's like bleeding yeah. through. So I teamed up with a specialist in Hebrew manuscripts to do the transcription nice. and translation. Um and so we've got basically and so when I came into this, what I expected was this is a relatively late manuscript. I think 1720. Hmm. I'm sorry, my phone is literally ringing. Let me just turn this off. No way. I don't. Nobody ever calls me. Like, I really mean it. That's like the first time I've ever heard in So, convenient. Um, you know, it's a quite late manuscript. But my instinct was that, like, this Jewish manuscript, where, like, the entire chain of transmission of the manuscript is in people who are fluent in Hebrew, mm-hmm. is going to preserve the pentacle. Like, when you look at the manuscript, I mean, a lot of times it is very obvious that the person who did that copying does not know Hebrew because, like, some of their letters are not letters. 
Like they're weird. Yeah, like, well, I've, like, I've, can, like, I've seen this even in modern practitioners. Like, you know, they're Hebrew. Like, when yeah, they're making right. circles, it's not super great and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, right. So, like, these Jewish friends have, I expected to be much better preserved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, particularly because these chronicles have way, way more writing. So, like, in places where, like, say, the Mathers manuscript will have one letter, mm-hmm. it has an entire word, like, in each, right. in each, like, point of a star, for example. Right. And so that was my expectation. And the more I work on it, the more I believe that to be true. Some like interesting facts about this are that the scribe has definitely seen more than one manuscript of these pentacles because he sometimes notes in the margins, like, but in a different manuscript, it says blah, blah, blah. Right. So, like, he has definitely seen various manuscripts and he is definitely like confident enough to correct the manuscript. Right, mm. like he'll be like, this obviously should be this letter, and here's why. Mm. The other thing is, it is so much in code. Well, most like, most grimoires, are, some grimoires are, yeah. No, no, I don't mean it has some blinds in it. I mean, I have a master's degree in theoretical mathematics, <laughs> and this is in code. Mm. Like, so we we have done our best to crack. Oh, I mean, mostly ciphers. But what right. I mean by that is, like, many of these names. It'll be like, okay, take this Bible verse. Now it's the first letter of each word. Now turn that in. Now do a, a 10 space or an 11 space Caesar cipher and then put it in a pig pen cipher. So yeah. some of them we have managed to track, but not all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Um, and, you know, this is my first time working with these pentacles. So it's the Mathers pentacles that I've been working with for almost 30 years at this point. I feel very confident when like, well, my spirits tell me it says that like this letter should be that. And also that turns it into this, which makes sense and blah, blah, blah. I feel quite confident doing that. Mm. Right. And that's not to say that like the, the changes I occasionally propose are the only possible one. Although sometimes there's just like clearly misspellings. Like some of mm. them are like obviously just types. Yeah. But some of them I'm making like a little more bigger changes. Mm. Right. Yeah. Uh, necessity or taxes and stuff. Right? Yeah. And that's because remember what I was saying before about like in this kind of magic, the powers arising from the names. Hmm. Like in in pentacles, but I think broadly in Hebrew amulet magic and really Jewish magic even more broadly and Judaism more broadly, you have like this tension between Keva and Kavan. Keva, I'm gonna translate it as ritual precision. It means like things have to be right. When you say okay. a prayer, you say this it's not like it's not like in a Baptist church where, like, how do you pray? You just, like, speak to God from your heart. Like, we have that kind of prayer. Right. We There's, like, an established access yeah, like, to established tradition. This exact words in this exact order. And, but you have to match with keva, ritual precision, right? But kavana means, like, mystic intention, right? And you need to match those two. You need to, you need to get them, you need the kavana to activate the keva and back and vice mm. versa, right? So, I can imagine that might be difficult if you're like going with if if the word, if, if one side of it is it's not not necessarily dogmatic that's maybe the wrong word but if one side's so rigid how do you integrate sort of mystic ecstasy or passion into that I guess right and like in many ways that's the central tension of Jewish experience the famous right. Jewish theologian 21st century Jewish theologian Abraham Heschel says and I don't know the exact quote but he basically says like if you don't acknowledge that problem you're an idiot and if you claim to have a simple solution for it you're a quack like yeah. mm. i mean 
I think he uses those like that's not an exact quote, but he definitely uses the word quack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I mean the way you do it is by first, like, you really have to understand why the ritual precision is the way it is. Hmm. Like you need to know, like you need to understand why is this a seven pointed star and not an eight pointed star? Why is this name here and not that name? Like why you, just, you need to know, like you need to understand the Keva, right? And that it sort of clarifies a Kavana. And then doing that enough times, you learn how to take a Kavana and write a ritual, a precise ritual for it, right? Like in my opinion, the reason to get real in the weeds about how these tentacles work is because once you understand how they work, you can construct new ones. Hmm. Right? Like, if you understand how they work, how, like, this intention gave rise to this exact, like, how do we pick these names? How did we encode them? How did we decide what codes to use? Why did we use this geometry? Like, once you understand that, you can construct your own. And that's, right. you know, I think the goal. Right. Hmm. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah, and so like you know, the problem is when you have these manuscripts that are copied by non-fluent people, both like not Hebrew fluent, but like I mean, if they don't read Hebrew, they can't. I don't really see how conceivably they can understand the fine details of how this was constructed. Right. Right. But a sh- shocking number of people who use the pentacles. And people who, I mean, some people who, like, there are people who I feel like set themselves up as experts in tentacles, and you'd be like, what is this word right here? And it's not that they say, I don't know, which is a perfectly legitimate answer. There are hmm. some names on these tentacles that now, after years of study and collaboration, I talk to other scholars, and I talk a lot to Hebrew, like, I spoke with a lot of Israelis, like, native speakers of Hebrew on this project, hmm. right, that none of us can figure out what this is supposed to be, right? And so I will provide some options in the book. Like, I don't know is a perfectly legitimate answer, but it doesn't matter. Doesn't seem like a legitimate answer to me. Like, mm. if your magic item has words on it, I think it does matter what those yeah, words are. If, yeah, if it's word magic, absolutely. Yeah, or, or name right. magic, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Right, yeah. exactly. And so, like, that's why I'm really interested in, like, those deep dives. Mm. And Zephyr Ha'utot is very... That's that Hebrew manuscript I'm working on. Mm. Like, it's providing a lot of a lot more technical, like I understand them way better now. Yeah. Having seen these like much cleaner versions. Right. Right. Which doesn't necessarily mean like better. I'm not suggesting there's some like original perfect version. Mm. I'm just saying like any other human crafted object, like some of them are well made and some of them are poorly made. Sure. Yeah. And these ones in Tepper Hotel appear to be made by an expert who like really, really knows the people. Yeah. Well, so, so I mean, on, on, on that note, like, what do we, what do we know about? I guess because you said you said describe with, uh, with the Safahot, it like he clearly knows sort of what he's doing well enough to substitute things in. So, do, what do we know about him as a as a scribe? Do we know like would he have been Jewish in that sense? Then he's certainly Jewish. His name is Isaac Zekel, and I don't remember his father's name of work. We don't know really any, I mean, he's definitely Jewish. His handwriting is Jewish. Like, based on his name, he's almost certainly Ashkenaz. I mean, he says he's of Worms, like, from the city of Worms. Mm. I assume that is true, which had, like, a very large Jewish community. So that's the same community that, like, 
the author of the Book of Abermelon. Yeah, I was going to mention, is, is there any link to Cordoba Abermelon operations and things? Because Abermelon has the word squares as well. Which... There, yeah, remember what I was saying about like there's a well-understood Hebrew amulet tradition? Yeah. Well, the word squares in Abermelon and the pentacles all fit squarely inside that right. same tradition. Okay. Certainly, I am not suggesting that like Isaac, the, the so he's the scribe of this text. He's, here's another thing about Jewish text. My experience is that Christian grimoires, I assume this is a reaction to it being illegal. Mm. It's like really secretive about stuff. Yeah. Like, sure. oh, God told me these words. But in Jewish text, you're like, here's my name. Here's where I live. Here's the name of the person whose book I copied. Here's where they live. Like, there, and there's like notes in the margins where, like, there's no instinct to like cover your tracks in these Yeah. Tracks. Well, like, that, that certainly makes the referencing a lot easier, I guess. Yeah, there's like substantial marginal notations where he'll say like, this should be this because of this verse. And like, like he explains his reason. Yeah. Right. And because he explains his reasoning, like even the ones that he doesn't note, you start to like, you can, you can tell how correcting a mistake, especially in a code. Like, it gives you a lot of information because it, you can understand how the person made the mistake. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So, like, for example, there's a lot of Sefer HaKot is written back. Okay. Like, that's just one of the magical, like, remember saying they're encoding these names? They're written sure. back yeah. sometimes. And, like, so he makes a lot of transcriptions. Like, the specific, like, when you're copying, I don't know how many magicians have, like, tried to copy an amulet backwards. But, like, mm. it's really easy to get the words like the letters transpose. So certain kinds of errors indicate, like they help you know what kind of code it was. Mm. Or, you know, in Hebrew, letters have a different form when they're at the end of a letter, or the letter has a different form at the end of a word. And sometimes when he's writing backwards, we like accidentally use the final form at the beginning. That's probably, yeah. And then as soon as you see that, you're like, oh, I'm going to try reading this backwards. Right? And all that. So like, yeah. Thankfully, the, okay, the person Remember I said I worked with a, a scholar who is a specialist in, in Hebrew manuscripts? They also have a background in math, which is very handy. Very fun, yeah. Like wrote some programs. Because, you, know, you guys could totally nerd out on it, yeah. Well, a lot of these codes, remember I was saying, like, you take well, the first letter of each word in the verse? Yeah. Well, that's really easy if you have the verse and you're trying to get the name. Sure. If you can find it and stuff, you're harder. trying to find the verse, it's, like, not that easy. Yeah. Especially when there's some mistakes. So, like, she wrote some Yeah. I'm really in the weeds about this place. <laughs> I'm really into this. Same with, with Orbit Hymns, right? Like, I'm really into, like, magical translation itself. Like, translation itself as a kind of magic. As a, as a concept and stuff, yeah. Right. And that includes, like, code cracking as a magic part. Yeah. Yeah, well, because I'm I'm trying to remember some of the ones some of the ones I know. Like I'm I, I'm fairly familiar mostly with the Latin grimoires. Yeah, you because know, you'll see mm -hmm. Latin grimoires where they'll write Latin backwards, or they'll use certain ciphers like Cyprianic, and it's pretty popular. Or Gripper has all the mm -hmm. different alphabets and things. Um, but I haven't seen I haven't seen too many for Hebrew. So I mean, is that is it like a, a like a normal kind of practice for ciphering in Hebrew, or is this or is this a yeah, it's super thing? duper normal and quite sophisticated. So there's like a couple different kinds. I'm not gonna. I realize I'm getting like really into the weeds of like TV stuff. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep this a little bigger. Like there's a couple different kinds. There's like a magical alphabet, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a kind of a cipher where like each Hebrew letter you are replacing with some other one. So 
So in particular, uh, like all the Agrippa ciphers, so like passing the river and whatnot, mm. even though sometimes people use those as ciphers on the Latin alphabet, they are intended as ciphers for Hebrew. Yeah. Like, and if you look at the letters, like it's clear because they're, they don't perfectly match the Latin alphabet. Yeah. Like there aren't enough letters, right? Yeah. Um, so we have that kind, right? Um, and then there's substitution ciphers, right? Which is harder because those, you, you, as soon as you look at them, you're like, oh, I know what's out there, right? But substitution cipher is where like you're taking one Hebrew letter and substituting it for another one. There's a couple of common ones. At bash is, is one which is just backwards, right? So it's called at bash because Aleph goes to Tav and Beth goes to Shin. Like the hmm. first letter goes to the last letter and the second letter goes to the second last letter. And that spells at bash basically. And so that's what it's called, right? Um, that's, I would say the most common one that definitely occurs in separate episodes. And there's a couple of other kinds of substitution ciphers. Broadly, any broad category of them called Caesar ciphers. Those mm -hmm. come up a lot. But then there's also these like acronym ones where you're taking a verse and condensing it. Um, and there's several different kinds of those. Those are often called notericon, right? Okay. Um, there's another kind called gematria where yeah. like in Hebrew, as in many ancient languages, the same characters are used for letters and numbers. Yeah. So there's a way to code back and forth from letters to numbers as well. And that also comes in a, like a lot of, there's like a little kitty version, right? Where each letter is a number and like, oh, I add up all the numbers and they're the same as this other word. So the words are the same. Like that's, that's legitimate gematria. Hmm. But I mean, there's also like more sophisticated and complex ways to use gematria mathematically. Sure. Well, I think gematria, like it, it played a role in, in like some, well, it played like quite a large role even in, in some Kabbalistic interpretations where they'll like look at a certain verse yeah. or something, they'll find the gematric value or something. And then if the word matches another word, like the one that's on my mind, I think that's kind of is like, the, I think it's, it's, isn't it like the word for secret and the word for wine has the same gematric value or something? And like there's some kind of, like link between the word secret and the word wine, and that's why wine is sometimes used in ritual and things. I remember reading it somewhere. I can't remember. I'm not gonna lie; I don't even know what Hebrew word they would mean when they say secret. Like, there's a lot of Hebrew <laughs> words that could mean that are translated as secret. That, like, so uh, yeah, probably yeah, that is definitely about right. And like that is generally so. In its core, all of these methods like arise as methods for biblical exegesis and like rabbinic the rhetorical or poetic devices for right. rabbinical theory so like rabbis would never say that like you can learn things really by comparing these numbers hmm. they're saying that like you can use those numbers to establish a connection that is evident okay i don't want to go too far here but like yeah gematria remember i was talking about like aristotle has these three ways to know when mm. Judaism, there's four ways, right? Okay. And like, like it's called the Pardace method. Pardace is the word from which our English word paradise derives. Mm. And um, it's a name for a kind of an ecosystem, actually. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imported word from like some kind of Persian language. We're not sure. Um, and it basically means like a walled permaculture orchard garden. Basically, but it's the yeah. name for like the type of ecosystem, right? But in yeah. this context, 
So like Pardes Idan is usually translated as the Garden of Eden. Mm. Um, in this context, though, it's an acronym um, in Hebrew. So, and it talks about like these four layers of understanding in a text. And what's important to understand is when I when I talk about this with Western magicians, a lot of times they're going to be like, "Oh, well, it's like verified and unverified messages," but it is not like that. It is all of these four layers verify each other, and they are all present in the text. And like one is not more important than this. So I'm going to very roughly translate because I want to preserve the action, right? So the P level is like a plain text reading. It's just whatever the text says, which like some of these texts, even that is not that obvious what the plain text says. Right. right? Mm-hmm. And like these pentacles, what I'm saying that with, with all these complex codes, sometimes the plain text doesn't say anything. Like it's not even worth it, mm. right? Okay. The next level is R, so it's P-R-D-S, mm. right? R is the one I have the most trouble translating into English with an R word. So sometimes I use romantic and sometimes I use arcane and you just say it like a pirate. So you remember that it's R. It's sort of like a symbolic or metaphoric level of understanding of it. Okay. If anybody listening can come up with an R word for that, that's better. Yeah, let us us know. Yeah. I haven't come up. I mean, I've tried for a long time to come up with an R word. (laughs) D, dash means like, it means inquiry. And it means inquiry in the sense of like dialectic, like philosophical inquiry, but it also means divination. Okay. Right. Like you're asking questions of the text, basically. Mm. Right. Um, but also that level includes like the kind of like crunchy linguistic analysis that I'm doing is usually deep. And then there's S for sode, which you could translate as secret, and I do because I want an S, but it actually means like mystery or revealed thing, right? So like the and to me like the mark of a text being like a sacred or magical text is mm. that it can simultaneously encode all four layers of that is to say right. if if everyone reading the text comes away with the same meaning then i know it is not a sacred or magical text because the nature of sewed meaning is that it is like personal revelation that not mm. just every person like the text communicates something to them but also every time I read that text, I have a new revelation of a new like mystery communication mm. directly from whatever spirit, like, I mean, in Jewish text, it's definitely God, right? Like sure. directly to me that is relevant in that exact moment, right? And like, if it can't do that, like it's just not a magical text. That's what makes a text sacred or magical in my opinion, right? Um, and so, you know, the pentacles, are really so when you look at those meanings and combining those meanings that's how you like sort of implant a mystic intention in a text and it's also how so here's the thing it's the same the same prayer every day especially if you're like really pious mm-hmm. you're saying the same prayer four times a day for your entire life it's pretty hard to have like an ecstatic passion for that right it kind of yeah so, repeats and stuff so a yeah. lot of these mystic intentions they're kind of like games that smart religious jews play with themselves to inject new meaning into these texts with which they are extremely familiar mm. right so like if you do if you will if you think about this word in this way then I can say these words but mean this other thing mm. like that's right I think in the yeah. root like, I don't mean to, like, 
minimize it because that's really important. But it gives you this ability to like whatever your mystic intention is to like implant, to find the right text to implant it in. Right. And to awaken a meaning in a text just the same way you like awaken a virtue in a materia. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, is there a, is, is there a sense uh, at all? And, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong completely, cause I, could, I could be completely off. It's just a theory. Um, but is there, is there a sense that like, it, it's, it's the names and the words that are important because they're encoding, as you said, sort of poetic and romantic and, and different revelations of knowledge and things. Is there any sort of sense that the names are important because of the sound they make? Because this is kind of yeah, the, the thing that we see in PGM and stuff with like trying to vowel sounds and things. So the name is yeah, like, the actual sound. Like, like, I think in the modern day, we sometimes think about writing as like sort of the essential form of language. Yeah. But of course, that's ridiculous. Like writing is very, very, very new in the history mm. of language. Like language is shapes you make out of your breath. Like yeah. that's in essence what language is, mm. right? And so, no, um, like, you know, we don't talk about this with pentacles, but like, for example, these prayers that I'm saying, they're almost always thumb. Like, mm. it's not just recited. They're, like, they're, yeah, the sound of it is very important. And Hebrew poetry, you know, basically everything rhymes in Hebrew because of the way the grammar works. Like, the end of the word is really determined by the grammar. So it's very, very easy to make things rhyme in Hebrew. So mm. Hebrew poetry doesn't rely so much on rhyme, but it relies a lot on, like, meter, but also on, like, assonance and alliteration and, like, complex slant rhymes across lines of poetry and yeah. all of that is very present in in Jewish liturgy and Jewish magic and Jewish Torah in a way that is usually lost in translation hmm. so like those texts are in their essence poetry like they're about shapes my out of breath yeah right and Absolutely. so sort of switching past to like Orphic hymns I talk about this a lot where like you know, sometimes people ask me if those translations are literal. And I'm kind of like, do you even poetry, bro? Like, I don't believe in the existence of literal translations of poetry. I really don't believe in the existence of literal translations of magical poetry. Yeah. Right? But so I really wanted to focus. But for people who want that, like, really what I would tell them to do is learn Greek. Like, I know that's a dick thing to say. But, like, if you really, 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 really want to know exactly what those words are, you're going to have to learn Greek because they won't mean the same thing in English. Yeah, you, are, you, are, you need to understand the meter and, and the different wording and grammar yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But also, like, I would recommend Athenasakis' translation, right? Which is mm. relatively literal and also is, like, very highly footnoted out about the, like, linguistic part of it, right? Mm. But, like, in my translations, what I want to do is, like, you know, I think the essence of poetry is not about conveying facts. Mm. It's about conveying feeling, right? Like the goal, I mean, poetry does a lot of complicated things and I'm not like a master poet. So like in its essence, poetry is a poet trying to make you feel things with words. Mm. Yeah, right? absolutely. And so in my translations, I'm really thinking about like if the great bard Orpheus were writing these in English for a modern American audience, how would he do that, right? Mm. And that's what I'm trying to do in those times, yeah. right? So they're very highly metric in what's called a heroic meter, which is not the same meter that they are in ancient Greek. Mm. Because, so dactylic hexameter, it, it just like, it's an uncomfortable meter in English. Like English yeah, words don't well. bend to that meter. 
And it, it has a tendency to sound like the way it conveys, it honestly has a tendency to sound a little like angry. Like you actually hear it in rap sometimes, like a non-trivial amount of rap is indexed to like a feminine. But like, it just has a different feeling to it, right? So mine are all in what's called heroic verse, which is rhymed iambic couplet, yeah. which is what like I think of as like if you think about like old tiny magic poetry in English, yeah, I feel like that's just the meter medicine. So that's yeah. why I chose that meter because I think like I think as modern, I think Anglophone generally, but certainly modern American English speakers like. That's just kind of like the nursery rhymey kind of meter. It's kind of what we're used to. Yeah, it makes it makes the I most sense. I think similarly that I, I think that's probably how ancient Greek speakers felt about textual attack Center. That's just like yeah. What? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying to because the what, I can't. I'm trying to remember what the Homeric meter is. Isn't it? Is it hexameter as well? I think Homeric. Yeah. It's Homeric. Yeah, so they, yeah. they would have been yeah. familiar with it. Yeah, exactly. Like most ancient Greek poetry particularly like sacred ancient Greek poetry or mythological yeah. of course. Like that's just the meter that it's in. And it's a very natural meter in Greek. Like it's not it's not that hard to make Greek words be in that meter. Whereas in English, it's just not where yeah. the accents are in words usually. Yeah. Like it's a yeah. difficult meter to write, but also a difficult meter to hear. Mm. You know how sometimes you hear a poem and you're like, ooh, that was a real like English class kind of poem. <laughs> Yeah. And other times you read a poem and you're like, oh, that touched my soul. Mm. I feel like Dexter has a tendency to be a little like stilted and formal in English. Mm. Yeah. It's just not natural <laughs> to the way that the language flows. So that's why I didn't. Mention. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, the only thing I guess um, I, I would ask from a, I guess from a practitioner point of view or a practice point of view is <laughs> like, if we if if we're taking the meter and the meter is kind of like a, a, a beat to the, the way you're reciting or praying or anything like that, it, like yeah. to what extent does the meter affect kind of altering your state of consciousness during ritual? You know, when you're doing things, especially if you're repeating prayers or repeating meter, hymns, whether that. you want meter, whether you want it to or not, impacts your state of consciousness. There, it, like, sure. there's a natural brainwave and trend. Yeah. So, I would say quite a lot. There's yeah. a, an anthropologist named Malinowski who provides like this definition of how to tell us. Remember, I said, like, here's what I'm looking for and to know if a text is sacred or magical. He provides different criteria. Mm. And ooh, I didn't prep this, so let me see. They're like, it's in the present tense. It uses, like, an... It uses unusual words, right? There's, like, words in it that are not normal, everyday words. Mm. It has a strong meter and other poetic devices. And it has a coefficient of weirdness. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, you know when you see it. But yeah, I, I do think that, like, I, I know this is, like, maybe my inner, like, fairy tale toddler, but I'm, like, deeply stuck <laughs> with magic that doesn't rhyme. <laughs> I just feel like magic should have a meter. When invocations don't have a meter, I don't like it. Yeah. No, I, it I, like I hear it. Yeah. Meter. But you know what I mean? If you're reading them out loud and you and there's like parts you like trip over, I think it's really important to like go look at that part of your invitation and find out why. Like if the mm. meter breaks during your magic, yeah, like you stumble over a word or something, I do think like going and looking at exactly where that happened can provide really like useful sort of troubleshooting information about that. Like like if the meter broke, then the energetic flow also stumbles. 
Mm. Right. Yeah. And like, I think it's good to look at why that happened and exactly where it happened. Yeah. But yeah, well, meter is super duper important. Yeah, that, that almost that almost makes me wonder if if like if you're if you're doing a particular Orphic hymn to a certain deity and sort of you consistently trip over the same word or the same section, if there's if there's a way of doing a kind of a divination in that, in that would the deity kind of deliberately trip you up in a section that it wants you to focus on more on? So I think that's one, but I would also I would not rule out the possibility that the hymn is wrong. So I will say if you look at the first edition and the second edition, you'll notice that there are a couple of small changes. Mm. And that's because some of the poems, every time I read them out loud, it turned out I was not actually reading the words that were on the page. Okay, a couple of places my Greek improved a little bit in between, mm. or I got feedback from other scholars. Right. And so sometimes I can't translate. There's a couple of places where I just like threw in a the or something. Mm. It's because I just felt like it needed it. And I didn't. So I guess what I'm saying is if you consistently trip over a part, instead of like trying to move your, like, it is important to look at like why you're doing that. And maybe you need to move yourself more in alignment with the hymn, but maybe you need to rewrite that line of the hymn to move it more in alignment with what you do. Hmm. And that's what I was saying about the keva matching the kavan. And when you right. stumble, it's a sign that they are not matching. And you just need to like, but you don't need to massage it all of the intention ends. Like you can also, like ritual precision doesn't mean doing it exactly like it is in the book. Like, the word grimoire means textbook. And so mm. sometimes I see these people like, I get it just like it is in textbook. And I'm like, that is not the quest you think it is. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like, you should do it that way so you understand it. But if you understand why all those pieces are put together, that gives you the ability to move them around to suit your purpose. And that yeah. I think of as the goal. Like the goal of studying a grimoire or any other textbook in any other subject is to understand it well enough that you can like redo it in your own words and create new things. Like the goal of studying mathematics is to create new methods. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it, it, it is kind of, you know, factors into, a, I guess, a discussion of using, uh, using grimoire templates or using templates, I guess, even from other, other mathematical traditions or using, you know, I guess you could say the same about the pentacles or something like that, of using established magical systems or magical templates to construct your own rituals and your own paradigms and doing things. But as you said, sort of using uh, established things that, you know, becoming familiar enough with the tradition to the extent that you There's can then. How much I'm in favor of that. There's an appendix in the Orphic Hymns that tries to teach people how to write their own Orphic Hymns. Yeah. There's not actually an appendix in the Pentacle book teaching you how to write your own Pentacles, mm. mostly because I already had to cut 60 pages out of the book to make my publisher happy. You are I will definitely teach you how to make your own Pentacles once you really know how they work. Like, yeah, 100%. And I'm also like, here's what I will say I think sometimes people do it. I just doesn't. <sighs> I think sometimes, especially for people who like maybe don't have not a deep understanding of the template they're working with, mm. but like of the surrounding cultural and historic context. Yeah. I think sometimes they accidentally neuter the template. Like they actually didn't really understand how that template worked. Yeah. And they would have been better off to change it more. Right? So like in a Jewish template, if you just take out all the Jewish names for God and slap in Greek names, it's, it's not going to work. 
because yeah. those names like they're not random like they're deep, they're embedded into the structure and like why did we do this one first and that one second like there's a lot of complicated reasoning and i think sometimes so i guess what i'm saying is like i am all for that and i think it's harder than people give credit to a lot of times yeah absolutely. But i also think that like There's a part in the pentacle book where there's one pentacle that I do teach people to construct. And it's what I call the great seal, which is kind of like an activating pentacle for mm. your relationship with Solomon. If you know that in the book, right? And I mm. do provide one that they can just use if mm. they want, but I tell them that like, as they practice, they should develop their own. And they have to pick out five names, right? And I say this in the book, and I'm going to say it here, like when you are filling in those templates, I think that like, as an experienced magician, but also as like an open-hearted, open-minded, open-souled human, mm. like beauty should be your guide. Like mm. when that template makes you cry because it's like beautiful yeah. and like you can feel it sing, that's when you know it's right. And I think a lot of people get real in their head. Like, look, I'm a mathematician. I translate. Like I'm real in the weeds and like the mm. nerdy brain stuff. But like there's you know, there's other pieces to that, and it's not just in your mind. You gotta like do it in your body and in your heart and in your soul, and you should feel it. And there are different answers. So, like, I will say personally, I cry mm. when I like that's my. I can feel it in my body, and for me, it's tears, and it's so embarrassing when it happens because it looks from the outside like I'm so enchanted with my own poetry that I'm crying. Yeah, it's like, my words. Yeah. It's really embarrassing. I my body's in museums. Mm -hmm. I just look at a statue and cry, and it's ridiculous. Like, yeah. I'm so embarrassed by it. But, like, that's actually what it is. And I'm sure other people, like, I'm sure it's not tears for everybody, but, like, I think we all know for ourselves, like, what it is that happens to us. There are, yeah, there are, there are things that, like, really get us. Yeah, and, yeah they really get us in there. Yeah. And, yeah. like, you, you know, you know when you've done it right because, mm. like, it, it cries. Like, it just, you know, it, really it, just, it, it works, it moves you. Yeah. Exactly. And like, if you can't exactly intellectually justify why, like until you're teaching it to other people, it doesn't matter. Like, I do think that once you're teaching other people, you do kind of have a responsibility to like back that shit up and like yeah. articulate your reason in a way that I'm saying, like, I find it frustrating that the medieval Mars refuse to do this. Like, it's bullshit that they don't explain anything. It's just like a weird... <sighs> Information wants to be free, man. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, yeah, show your work. Yeah. Um, but, like, when it's your own personal practice, I don't think you have any responsibility to, like, explain where you got it from. Yeah, sure. Right. I just personally am, like, a deeply nerdy human. Like, I love all that technical Yeah, stuff. you love it. It's great. Yeah. But if you're not into it, like, that's cool. Like, like I also sometimes write invitations in Glossolalia. Where it's nothing but like the sound, the just shape yeah, the actual like no stuff, yeah, yeah, and that works great too, you know. Yeah, either, either way can work, I guess. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, um, and I think it's really when you combine the two that I think that's where like secret sauce. Right, you know? it's, it's the sweet spot. Yeah, it's always interesting. Um, so yeah, okay, well, uh, we are coming up on our hour now, so if we want, uh, so we, if we start coming up, uh, start or start wrapping up. Um, 
Is there any, what are you, aside from sort of working on that translation for the stuff for her, uh, what else are you currently working on at the moment that people may be interested in? <laughs> well, I am teaching a course on the pentacle, which more or less matches the book, like a companion. Like, you can think of the book as like the textbook for the course. Right. I yeah, teach an introduction to witchcraft course, which I love teaching you. Um, and then I have a ton of upcoming events. So when is this going to air? I don't want to tell people what about events that'll be done. But uh, saying what is it today? It's Tuesday. Uh, probably next Tuesday. I, they usually go on Tuesday. It's probably Tuesday sixteenth. Okay. All right. So let's see. Um, they're gonna miss that. Um, if they are here in Pittsburgh, I'm doing a talk on tarot on January twenty seventh. Uh, in February 24 through 28, maybe President's Day weekend, I think I'll be in Ann Arbor, Michigan at Convocation, where I am teaching Introduction to Jewish Kabbalah, uh, a more intermediate Jewish Kabbalah class on Hod and Yesod, which between you and me, uh, I don't really know what I'm teaching that class yet. Like, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh, it's still February, right? Um, and then I'm teaching the first lunar pentacle the lunar lock and key um and then in march easter weekend i will be in hunt, I don't know, it's like suburban baltimore hunt valley maryland i think it's called yeah. suburban baltimore where i am teaching arashtagal in the pgm i think also lunar lock and key yeah and i think one other thing that i don't remember off the top of my head uh in May Day weekend, I think. I will be at Tradera in Ohio at Wellspring, which is the ADF, the Druid Conference. I don't know what I'm teaching there yet. I think either something about ancestors or something about trees. If I can figure Very, out something about okay, ancestors yeah. and trees. Yeah, if you, can, if you can bring them both, bring them both together, that'd be fun. Yeah. Partly, you know, ADF is like Indo-European is mm. is prime, okay? They say it's all Indo-European mythology, but like objectively, it's basically Western European mythology. Right. I don't have that much to say about that, truthfully. Mm. But it's also ancestors and land, and in particular, that's not very far from where I live, like eco region wise. Like they have the same trees there that I have here, so I thought like something land or ancestors would be good. Yeah, that works. I love I love doing ancestor work at festivals. Like I feel like. It's not necessarily the most fun thing I do. Like, it's more fun to do, but, like, a Arrested on the PGM, that's going to be a really fun class. The ones where we, like, make pentacles, those are really, I mean, for people, but also for me. Whereas mm. the ancestor work, for me, it feels important. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I spend all day, like, feeling the grieving and, like, really working with our, our culture, especially in the States, but I think Anglophone culture broadly mm. is, like, grossly fucked up around death. Yeah. And so that just feels like really important work that like I'm I like doing, but it is hmm. less for me. <laughs> like it's, it's real heavy. I'm um helping grieving people all day, basically. Yeah. When I it's do it's brilliant. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um and then June twenty third, I'll be in Birmingham, England for Magical hmm. Women's Conference. My my younger brother lives in Swindon. Oh, ah, I'm usually okay. in Britain once a year. That's why I'm in Britain once a year. Because right. I'm but yeah. Um, and then I'm doing a reading at Watkins 
I don't know, in late June. I'm sure it'll be on their website. And then the second week in July, I'm doing a Lunar Witchcraft Conference in Italy. And then hopefully I am coming home and never doing anything. <laughs> you see, during pandemic, I really missed like live events. Yeah. So I just said yes to everything. Everything. Now I'm looking at just get out everywhere you can. Yeah. I'm like maybe regretting how much I signed up for. I'm like never <laughs> going to be home. Like I'm basically booked every three weeks from February to October at this point. Yep. And I'm not young or cool enough to make that. <laughs> I'm a hobbit. So after Italy, I think I'm going to come home and yeah. never agree to see any other human Yeah, beings. that's that's you done for the rest of the year now. Well, hopefully. We'll see. <laughs> um, what else am I working on? I'm hoping to... Something I do a lot that I think... You know, the nature of witchcraft now, where it's like all very international and online... Oh, mm. I also teach those classes in Italian and Chinese, by the way. I oh, don't. Cool. I have five I translators in a time. Hmm. And it is right. Sure. But I suppose everyone listening to this speaks English. <laughs> um, you know, I feel like the more like local type stuff we never hear about, right? So like yeah. working with local spirits, like I'm not gonna come on a podcast in England and talk about that because like what do you care how I work with the Monongahela River, you know? Right. So but I'm thinking I'm hoping in the spring I'm gonna start doing like a YouTube series about basically like gardening as a magical activity and yeah. particularly with really gardening in as a perception practice mm. right like like gardening in alliance with the queen of health that's right? that's, that's natural, quite that's quite the title for you to say. yeah i mean like well you know we we all i mean i don't know how you guys learn it there but here like in elementary school and they teach us they teach us the food chain mm. but like there's no food chain there's a food circle like it, there's a whole underground piece of that where things decay and feed other things yep. and i feel like i feel like as much as we talk about that as magicians like nothing puts you in touch with that like composting you know what i mean like really yep. having your hands in dirt i think yep. i think like i'm always stuck about people who do a lot of plant magic but like don't throw plants <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, it's quite strange. It, it's also like to, to a certain extent, like uh, like this is just what I've seen just from some of the like the local, especially Wiccan covens here. Um, uh-huh. For people who sort of self-identify as witches and, and do a lot of herbal magic, like you said, they very rarely actually get out and get their hands dirty. That's like one of the things yeah. I've noticed, which is really weird. Like I, 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 it has kind of come back a bit in people who are who are now identifying as like traditional witches as opposed to Wicca, like you know, the whole traditional witchcraft movement. Like that, those kinds of people, they are getting much more out into the land and very much kind of stuck in. But it doesn't appear as much in Wicca here, which is really weird to me. But so, I don't know. Okay, so a thing we have where I grew up, and particularly in the East Coast of the United States, I don't know if you guys have these in England. They're like. Dolls made out of corn. Uh, yeah, I, I we have sort of similar stuff. Like yeah, and stuff, right? Okay, but here they're. I'm gonna change headphones because my batteries just died. That's fine. Um, there's a a catalog of idols that I get in the mail. It's called Sacred Source. This is not. I'm not shitting on them. Like I like that company, but one of the things they sell is a corn doll made out of polyester resin. Hmm. And I feel like to me, that is like just the symbol of this exact issue you are talking about. Like, I don't yeah. think that item should exist. 
Yeah. And if you own one, I don't, I mean, I would like to be judgmental, but if you own a corn doll made out of plastic, yeah. I think you're doing it wrong. There's, there's something that, yeah. Yeah. And, no. and that's so, I'm, I'm always a little like, like, it's not, my objection isn't to plastic in general. Hmm. I mean, my objection is to plastic in general. I'm like a crunchy hip. Sure. But yeah. like, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, many of my statues, well, okay, most of my statues aren't plastic because either I made them or I inherited a shocking number of Greek idols from my Jewish grandmother who like, I know what it looks like when somebody has poured oil and wine over the head of a statue for 20 years. Like, I know, I know the difference between art and a statue of the spirit in it. And like her Artemis was definitely inhabited when I got it already. Yeah. Which, yeah. So like, so actually mine are mostly not plastic because they're old and from my rich grandma. Mm-hmm. That's a whole other show where I uh, <laughs> that's explain, episode. explain why I usually refer to her as my Baba Yaga. Like I don't mm-hmm. have one of those like nice grandmas. <laughs> mm. Okay. Um, Good to know. I got like I got like the witchy arty crazy kind. Mm. Which you know, as a witchy arty crazy person, sucks sometimes. You know, I'm also that kind of person. Sure, that's why I don't have kids. Mm-hmm. I'm glad she had kids, but I don't think she was. Like, I think all of our grandmothers needed feminism, but my like maybe lesbian witchy artist grandma like really needed feminism and mm. instead ended up with four little girls divorced by the time she was 30 bringing up yep. four no, kids no, no, no. you know so like yep. she did the best she could like i'm not yep. faulting her but uh, her best was insufficient mm. um anyhow so like yeah like there's nothing it's not like i object to like the use of plastic and magic like i'm not I'm a crunchy hippie, but I'm not like judgmental, like do what you got to do. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like I was young and poor too. Like, you know what I mean? I've done plenty of magic with like a flashlight and a cigarette because yeah. that's what I had in my dorm room or that's what I had in the car that I was living out of. You know what I mean? Like you do what you got to do, but a particular corn dolly made out of plastic. I just find off putting. It's like a symbol anyway. So I'm going to try and do some, some gardening videos in the spring, which I think will be cool. Yeah. So people should nag me about that. So I actually do it. It's like in the spring, he's like, yeah. hey, "You promised me these videos, but, but you know, it's it's quite cold right now. I don't really want to." Yeah. I mean, like spe- speaking of which, actually, it snowed for the first time in like ages here today, and we just like it's blanketed everything. A muzzle. I was yeah. shocked when I was in England visiting my brother one time over Christmas, and there was nothing i mean like a dusting of snow and london shut the fuck down yeah so if we get more than like two millimeters the entire country just goes to shit yeah it's yeah it's it's crazy like i did not and i didn't anticipate this here's a thing i don't know if british people know this in Mm. america we think england is like a dickens christmas carol card that's what we imagine like when i think about england and there's definitely snow in that And that, I don't know. I like didn't. Just, I know that's yeah. ridiculous. Like this, like, what a like stupid American thing to say. But like, I don't know. Like our view of we definitely. I think I really think most Americans think mm. of England as like ye old merry time. Yeah, like mm-hmm. that's what we th- are thinking about in our head. So yeah, yeah. no, it doesn't, doesn't. I mean, honestly, yeah. it barely snows here now, which is a little mm. troubling. Yeah, like we have had 
maybe an inch of snow thus far. And that is, it's been really very warm so far yeah. this winter in a way that is like troubling. Yeah. Like, I don't song. like to think about it too hard. Yeah. I'm going to plant another fruit tree, which is what I do every time I freak out. Go back to your garden. Change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, I, I mean, that's my coping mechanism. Like, every time sure. I start to really freak out, I plant an apple tree, which I don't know, better than heroin, like, as coping mechanisms go. Like, I don't know what to say. It's maybe not the best of all coping mechanisms. Doesn't maybe really fix things but i like to imagine the like feral band of post-apocalypse children who eat from my orchard somehow that yeah. makes me feel better mm-hmm. just the long orchard of apple trees and that's it mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. i mean it's not that long i live in the city it's like okay. a small yard i have like 12 trees and honestly i don't know what i'm gonna do because i'm with this coping mechanism kind of out of room to trees. Your entire garden's gonna be full. That's gonna be it. I mean, it's kind of getting there. Like yeah. I said, I'm like, like I said, I live in the city, so like it's not it's, that big of a. You're running out of space now, yeah. mm. man. Anyway, I'm sorry you told me to wrap up, and that was like twenty no, minutes no, ago. No, you're and good. I just you're good. Don't worry about it. Rambling. Yeah. No, we keep going. It's good. It's very good. I'm sure people enjoy uh, enjoy the rambling conversations um, all the time <laughs> because apparently that's so, the comments I get. Well, here. But- in particular, I'm going to be in England, like I said, basically from the summer solstice until like the first week in July. Mm-hmm. And I am open to suggestions for things that I Absolutely. should do. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, 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 I'll where, you, where you go? Are you going to the London? Or? I'm going to Magical Women's Conference in Birmingham on the 23rd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My brother lives in Swindon, which is actually yeah. like really convenient mm. for sightseeing. Like yeah. to an American half the country is driving distance for Swindon. Yeah. Because I feel like two hours is very easy. To like, uh, sure. I'll yeah. drive two hours there and back in a day. Yeah. That's it's, like, it's that's like a commute in the United States. Right. Yeah. So I, I'd love to, I really like Avebury. So I'm going to go back to yep. Avebury for sure. I've been there mm-hmm. a couple of times. Yeah. Um, and then I'll be in London for a book reading and yeah. maybe other things. So I don't know. Entice yeah. me. Tell I will. Where, I'll, like, I'll, I'll draw up you, a list. I'll let you know. Right. But also like in the audience, like, you know, yeah. tell me cool places to go. Bath, maybe. Bath was really cool. I would like to go back to Bath. Bath would be cool. If you're going there, go to the um go to the springs. Because they have they mm-hmm. have a bunch, they have a bunch of fun cursed tablets around there as well. If you're for oh, magic. That's cool. Yeah. So. That sounds fun. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Stonehenge was actually quite disappointing. I I'm going to agree with you, actually. Because you can't like you can't like you can't go in. You're just kind of in a car looking at it from afar. Like yeah, well, well unless it's like, unless it's the solstices or the equinox or the, like the oh, solstice, if, if it's at the solstice, they take the barriers down so you can go in and touch the stones and stuff. But yeah, that's but, only on the solstice. but isn't it like super duper crowded, loud and crowded? And yeah, it's well, it's basically a festival. People. So imagine yeah. imagine that with I'm like not, two other people. It's ridiculous. I'm. I mean, I like that sort of festival, but like. No. Also, I'm going to be in Iceland for summer solstice. Ooh, it's nice. Yeah. Iceland Air just started flying direct from Pittsburgh, where I live. So there's oh. this promo for mm. like, it was like $500 round trip to Iceland, which is much yeah. cheaper. That makes it much cheaper to fly to Reykjavik and then London. Mm. So I'm just going to stay in Reykjavik for a couple yeah. of years. <laughs> you don't because, because I can. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Easily, easily done. Yeah. I think it'll be fun. Yeah, we'll see. Absolutely. And apparently, Iceland has the largest population of people who believe in elves. Apparently, mm-hmm. from I've heard. I've heard that as well. So, I assume I'll feel right at home. Yeah, 
<laughs> but I mean, I don't speak Icelandic, mm. but it's like sort of similar to German. Maybe I, I could probably learn a little less. It's still, yeah, it's still like part, oh, it's very at least like Northern Germanic or something, isn't it? Right. Well, like Northern my German's Germans. 20 years ago, my German was fluent. My German's like, okay. Mm. And my Yiddish and Pennsylvania Deutsch, which are like surprisingly closer to each other than either is to modern high German. Mm. Like, I guess what I'm saying is I actually know a surprising amount of like older dialects of German, yeah. which is maybe closer to, I, yeah. I really don't know anything about the Icelandic language. Mm. That's, that's, that's kind of where I'm getting with Greek, where it's like, I know ancient Greek or, or I, I know Attic and Koinic like mm -hmm. well enough, but that I don't know that much, much modern Greek. So I'm still learning modern Greek if I'm going. Like I, I can well, kind of piece it together, but it's a you bit. Know, the truth is like everybody under the age of 40 in Greeks, in Greece speaks English. Yeah. Like you should practice your modern Greek, but objectively, like like everywhere else in Europe, basically all young people, like everybody speaks English. Yeah. Especially if you're going to like tourist places in Greek. Yeah. yeah. Everybody there. I mean, but in my entire time in Greece, I think I encountered like two people, both of whom were like well into their 70s who didn't speak English. Yeah. I also don't have much modern Greek. Like I have some. Yeah. But like I, my I, I have enough to like order, get, 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 the, get the, like the bill at the restaurant. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> I same. I mean, also, you know, ancient Greek goes pretty far. Yeah, absolutely. Like, the truth is, if you speak ancient Greek to a modern person, they could figure it out. Yeah, probably. Like, I think people overestimate like how fluent you have to be to have a conversation. Like humans like to talk to each other. So yeah, we can kind like, of figure it out. If you can like, Rick, you really only need to know like six words and like a lot of like, like six words, a lot of smiling and pointing goes a long way. Yeah. In most languages, in my opinion, mm -hmm. Absolutely. like humans want to talk to each other, but also these days, my experience is young people basically everywhere speak English. Yeah. So it's not as they all learn it in school. Yeah. Or, or online through media and everything. Yeah, so. and TV and yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> Which is as a stupid American who does not speak enough language, like I appreciate. Yeah. Because it's like absurd that I speak ancient Greek, but not say Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> like it's actually I, I know I know I know like more modern languages. No way. Like, I know way more ancient languages than I do modern well, languages. Well, Spanish in particular, like a like non-trivial number. I mean, like a lot of Americans speak Spanish and not English. I should yeah. Speak Spanish. Yeah, I suppose. Honestly, I would imagine more people in the United States speak Spanish and not English than in Spain. Where again, I think all I suppose, yeah, I, I could see it. I could see that actually. Now I think about but we it. don't we don't educate people in the United States, so mm, sure. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Sorry, oh. doom speak. <laughs> yeah, that's a lovely note. To end, lovely I live note to in end a quasi-apocalyptic hellhole. Yeah, lovely note uh, to be end safe on. out there. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't worry well, about it. Thank you so much. Sorry, I'm so rambly today. Don't worry. I love it. It's great. Thank you for coming awesome. on. Thank you for having me. I had a lot of fun.